You've made your point. Have I? I hope so. Such a waste of time. He chose money over power. In this town, a mistake nearly everyone makes. Money is the McMansion in Sarasota that starts falling apart after ten years. Power is the old stone building that stands for centuries. I cannot respect someone who doesn't see the difference. The world, right? Isn't it fascinating? Uh, the world values money and, and power and influence and all the things that, that, those, that that money can buy, right? All the stuff that comes along with it, the perks, the extras, the special treatment. But even within that, the world understands that these things are not all equal, that money will go away quicker than power. Even within that, we realize that they're, they're not all on the same par. We look at a clip like that and we realize that our culture, our, our culture trusts in money. It honors those who have it. It honors those who have power. It honors those who, who have those things. It treats them special. Money, power, success, influence. These are the currencies of our culture. In and of themselves, they're not wrong. They can be used for God's glory if used appropriately with humility. They can be used to point to Jesus. They can be used to advance the gospel. But when pride muddies the water, when pride steps into influence, power, money, these things can be turned on their head and used for great evil, used for unrighteousness, used for ungodliness. Well, my name is Phil, and I serve as the executive pastor here at Mosaic, and uh, I'm also on the teaching team, so every now and then I get to uh, get away from some of the, the business dealings of the church and, and kind of step into this, and I love to be able to do that. And today we're in the book of James, and we've been in the book of James for a few weeks now, and we've been, we've been treating it topically, which means that sometimes we're jumping around a little bit within the book. So if you're kind of super linear, that might kind of drive you crazy. We're going to keep on driving you crazy. That's all right. And today we'll be in a couple of places in the book of James, specifically chapter 2 and chapter 5. Before we get into this, let's just take this time and hand it over to God in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for a chance to open your word. God, I pray that as we do so, that our hearts would be humbled, that we would be, uh, come before you with, a, with an open mind, ready to, to allow you to shape us, to stick your scripture into our hearts and into our souls in such a way that it is both, both painful and freeing at the same time. God, I pray that you would do so to your honor and to your glory, and that we would come before you fully ready to be changed, to become more Christ-like. We pray these things in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, the world of James's day was influenced by incredibly powerful government structures. It was influenced by uh, people that were wealthy, Local leaders that were wealthy, landowners that were very wealthy and powerful. And as the church dealt with uh, poverty in its midst and persecution, and it dealt with the, uh, the uh, incoming of powerful people, the church was having an impact on the whole culture around it. And so it dealt with all these things. And we see people that are uh, coming into the church from all different sorts of backgrounds, people of different um, Financial means. We're finding a home in the church, finding life in the church 
that is centered on the death and resurrection of Jesus. People of different power structures were coming into the church and you have the poor and the rich finding themselves kneeling at the same foot of the cross being completely equal in Jesus. And it's an amazing thing. People of high standing and low standing fighting themselves equal before Christ. This clash of religious cultures and racial cultures and socioeconomic cultures and power cultures, it created incredible opportunities for dysfunction in the early church, right? Now, I always think it's funny when people say that, you know, we, we just need to get back to the early church. We just need to get back to the, to the New Testament church. And I think, have you read the New Testament? Because there's a lot of times where it's pretty messed up in there, I mean, if we're honest, right? I mean, there's a big learning curve that we see happening in the New Testament church, in the early church. And so it's funny, but these opportunities for dysfunction, they also created incredible opportunities to shine a light on what the gospel can do when it truly infects a group of people who say, look, it it doesn't matter who we were before we walked into this room. In Christ, we are are equal in every sense of that word. And so uh, we see uh, persecution um, in the church, and we see the church trying to deal with that, and we, and we see the, the church trying to figure out what does it mean to be the church in the world? And, and that's a part of what James wrote this book for. But he also wrote it to say, what does it mean to keep the world's values out of the church? Because it's so easy to let that stuff creep back in. Here they are, they're dealing with persecution, and uh, the poor in their midst were being taken advantage of in many ways by by some of the wealthy landowners in the area. Some of them were being hauled into court by people who could afford to fight that kind of fight in court. We, we think of these people who are, who are dealing with this and they're, they're, they're fighting for, for their lives, they're fighting for their, their, their very survival. And, and it, would, it would be easy to look at this and think, man, what are we even fighting for? I mean, the world is winning. Why are we even trying? And what does James say to this situation? He says, the treasures of this world are not to be your ultimate treasures. He says in, in chapter 1, seek instead the crown of life. The power structures of this world are, are not to be the things that we long for, that we aim for. In fact, in chapter 4, he says, friendship with the world can be like becoming an, an, an enemy of God. And in the midst of dealing with that persecution and oppression, from those uh, who were using their wealth and power for, for evil instead of good, James steps in with a word about those who were doing the oppressing. James gives the church just a little bit of a glimpse into the future of those who, uh, who were using their wealth and power to make their lives so difficult. Take a look at James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, go ahead and grab one underneath your seats and if you don't own a Bible, by all means, just keep that. We, we would love to, to give you a Bible. Take a look then at James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> James says, Come now, you rich. And this is not all rich. This is um, those who are using their wealth to exploit others. He says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Don't you wish James would just say how he really feels? I mean, seriously. I mean, why is this guy so timid with his words? He Just come out and say it already. Seriously, this is some harsh words, right? I mean, you get an image like, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. I mean, that's a vivid image, right? Some animal is rolling around in the muck thinking he's, you know, hit the lottery because his owner has given him more food than normal. All he's doing is being fattened up for the kill. It's more bacon for the table, right? More meat for the slaughter. Who is James talking to? Is he saying that, the, that this is the fate of all rich, all powerful? Is he saying that if you're rich and powerful that you're automatically going to be engaged in unrighteousness? No, I don't think so. There are, there are great examples in the New Testament where a person who is wealthy can use that wealth to bring great glory to God, to, to advance the gospel. And we see that throughout human history where people have used their ability to, to make money to be able to bring great glory to God and to advance the church and to advance uh, the spread of the gospel throughout the world. But look at the description of these particular rich people. What does James say about them? First he says, you've laid up treasure in the last days. So you see, they were overly focused on gathering up as much wealth as possible to to bolster their own sense of uh, security and safety and comfort. Then James tells us that these particular rich people were not paying the people who worked for them. He says in verse 4, The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Imagine that a poor rural farmer who barely has enough to eat, he is fully dependent on the person who pays him to be able to get enough money to even provide the most basic necessities in this day. And here, the person who is supposed to be paying him, the person who he has worked for all day, doesn't pay him. What is he going to do? He has no other options. He can't go and complain. He can't sue that guy. He just has to show up at work again the next day, hoping that maybe that day he'll get paid, hoping that that day he'll get what is due to him. And so, in this case, the rich in question, they're holding back what is owed. And that, that poor farmer, is, he's completely stuck. And James says that missed paycheck is crying out to God. The dishonesty has not been done in secret. It's not been done in secret. What else does James say about these unrighteous rich? He says you've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You know, when most of the culture around you is, is poor and, and you are wealthy, as it would have been in James's day, the vast majority of people would be poor. Very, very few would be wealthy. There is an incredible opportunity to show grace and mercy 
and benevolence to those who have not had the same opportunities that you have had. And to those who are working their tails off but are in positions that are not going to ever make much. There's an incredible opportunity to make a a genuine difference with money. But what do the rich do in chapter 5? They hoard their wealth. They don't even pay the very people who are making them wealthy. And they live a life defined by luxury and self-indulgence. And James says essentially, look, there is a world of hurt coming upon you. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your gold and silver have corroded. Now, before the, the science geeks in the room get a little freaked out by that gold and silver corroding thing, look, James knows that gold and silver can't rust, okay? It's a metaphor. Just go with it. Sometimes it helps the story along. It's all right. It makes it more fun. Um, but what's the point here? See, the world trusts in silver and gold and power and influence and prestige and talent. And James tells us that stuff will be gone before you know it. How many in this room watched their house double or triple in value during the housing boom here in Florida, right? And you thought, man, this is great. I'm rich. And then the bubble burst and you realized that money wasn't even real. That was like monopoly money. It, it didn't really exist. What does James say in chapter 4? He says, we are, we are like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Money, power, prestige, influence, talent. When we build our identity on the temporary, our reward is temporary. When we build our identity on the eternal, our reward is eternal. When we honor what the world honors, we receive only what the world has to offer. When we honor what God honors, we tap into something far greater than we could ever imagine. See, see the money is not really the point. The unrighteousness is the point. Trusting in wealth instead of God is the point. Building our own kingdom instead of God's kingdom is the point. Being a person of power and influence is great if you're using that for God's glory. Using it to advance our own kingdom is never okay. The fascinating thing about money, power, and influence is that, is that if you have it, there is a temptation to use it for oppression and evil and control. And if you don't have it, you are tempted to seek out the people who do have it, giving them special honor to gain money, power, and influence, even if that means subjecting yourself to a little bit of, of oppression along the way. See, this was no different in the early church. We deal with that today, and the early church dealt with it as well. They dealt with the realities of poverty on a daily basis. And some of that poverty was a direct result of the oppression from the unrighteous rich that we read about in chapter 5. But what do they do when these very oppressors come into their midst, come into their area, come into their doorstep. Jump back to chapter 2, and let's spend some time there finding out. James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. James says to the church, 
My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and then a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, here, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, he says. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You you see the ridiculousness of this situation? The church is dealing with persecution. The church is dealing with oppression. And when the oppressors come into their gathering, what do they do? They fall all over themselves trying to figure out, look who's here. You know who that guy is? You know they're very powerful people. You know they employ half the town? Let's make sure we get them a good seat. Uh, take, take that person who's kind of dressed in a shabby way, stick him at the back. In fact, just make him sit on the floor. Just, just, that's fine. Make sure we've got a chair for the, the wealthy person. We wouldn't want them to have a bad experience. Even in the church, it's easy to think that we need those who are rich and powerful to accomplish great things for God. And you know what? God can choose to work that way. In fact, he already has in the past. But it's the difference between two different words. It's the difference between the word through versus the word from. Do we think that the provision of money or cultural influence comes from the rich and powerful and people of means or through the rich and powerful? Key difference. See, if it comes from somebody of means, then here's what we will do in the church. We will merely thank God, and we will honor the wealthy person who has made that provision. But if we believe that it comes from God through a wealthy person, then we will, we will thank the person who, who gives, and we will honor God as the ultimate provider. We will thank that person who gives merely for being available, merely for for treating their wealth as something that is open-handed, open for God's use rather than clenched fists holding it tightly. And you think of how crazy the situation is in the early church here in, in the book of James in light of what the church is all about according to Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus walked into a culture that was all about class structure and racial distinctions and power struggles, even within the Jewish system of of worship. And he said, enough, enough. We're not going to do it that way anymore. We're not going to live that way anymore. Jesus steps onto the scene and he, he says crazy things like, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I mean, that messes everything up. It turns it all upside down. He says, he looks at the poor and the rich, and he says, blessed are the poor. He looks at the powerful, and he says, 
what good is it if you gain the whole world, but in the process you lose your soul? What's the point of that? Jesus looks at the culture of his day and he, he turns it upside down. Galatians 3 says that you know, there, there's no such thing as Jew or Greek anymore. There's no such thing as male or female, slave or free. Galatians says you are all one in Christ. Honoring or respecting one person over another due to race or, or cultural background, power, influence, These things go against everything that the church was founded on. Everything that the church was meant to do in this world. The church was designed to be the one place where those distinctions, they don't matter here. The rich bring what they have and they offer it freely. The poor bring what they have and offer it freely and each are treated equally. Those with power and influence, those who know people, are treated equally with those who couldn't move anything forward if they tried because it's just not who they are. It's not what God has made them to be. It's in the church where we, we bring everything we have and we say, what I have is not my own. I'm just a steward of it. That's all I am. And what does James say about the, the partiality that was being shown here in this Chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Have you not become judges with evil thoughts? That's what we do when we show partiality. Become judges with evil thoughts. Verse 9, in case it wasn't super clear, James makes it really clear. If you show partiality, you're committing sin. I mean, that, that doesn't make any, you can't get any clearer than that, right? That's not a joke. That's not strategic. It's not missional. Not a good way to gain influence in your culture. It's just sin, plain and simple. And what does James say about the poor in verse 5 of chapter 2? Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? To take what Jesus called for in the church and to so quickly give it up in an effort to gain money power, influence, and prestige by really kind of sucking up to those who, who have those things in droves. To be willing to cast aside the poor in an effort to please the rich could not be further from the heart of the gospel. Jesus wants to do those things through us and for us. Do you see that? But you know, that, that all feels a little distant to me. I know that there are all sorts of ways that the church could show favoritism today. And I know that it does. I know that in churches across America, there are, there are churches that are going to show favoritism. Thankfully, I don't see it here at Mosaic. I've only been here seven or eight months, so, you know, maybe something will pop up. But at this point, I don't see it, and that's great. So as I've been working on this sermon and, and letting this passage of Scripture really kind of soak into me, I kept feeling like I was missing something. Like there was some key aspect or application of the passage that I was just not getting. You ever have that happen when you're studying God's word? Like you're you're in a passage and you're 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 being drawn back to it again and again, and you're in it and you're saying, Man, I know there's something else God wants to show me here, but I just can't figure out what it is. And so I'm praying about that and I'm saying, 
you know, God, not for nothing, but, I, but I've got to teach this to a lot of people this weekend. So it'd be great if you could show me what it is that I'm missing. It'd be really awesome. Um, so finally, I'm praying about this, and yesterday morning, uh, the Spirit of God finally spoke to me and, and showed me what I was missing in James chapter 2. Let me just back up a minute. See, every time I've come to this passage of Scripture and read about this church that is showing partiality, showing favoritism, giving preferential treatment to one person over another because of money and power and influence. I've always reacted in this way. Man, that is terrible. How could they do that? Why would they trade everything? I mean, don't they know that the first will be last and the last will be first? I mean, have they missed everything? Who are the pastors that are doing this? Why are you doing this? You're not helping. Stop it. Get out of the way. Let somebody else do this right. And that is an appropriate response, right? To have your, your righteous indignation kind of well up inside of you, your, your sense of justice. You, you want to step in and say, man, give that poor person the best seat. Make the rich person sit at the back. The, the sense of justice kind of overwhelms, right? And that's an appropriate response if you are uh, kind of standing on the outside of this passage and looking in, kind of like it's a, you know, a play that's happening over here. It's kind of, it's over here, it's, it's distant. And, and what God sort of spoke to me as I, as I was asking him to show me what I was missing, he just sort of whispered into my ear and said, stop looking in from the outside. I, I want you to go into that room. I want you to actually be present in that room, in that gathering, in that church. And then ask yourself this, who are you in that room? Which person are you? You've got the, the person who's showing favoritism. You've got the rich guy who has lots of power and influence, money. You've got the poor guy with none of that. So God says to me, who are you in this room? Who do you most identify with? So I think about this for a bit. <clears throat> and I know I'm not the one who's showing partiality or giving special treatment. Uh, if you didn't know this, I'm from New York, and in New York, um, being a jerk is like a love language. So, um, you know, partiality is not really my thing, you know. So I know I'm not that guy. I look at the, the poor man in shabby clothes, and I start thinking about his life. I try to put my mind into, into his world. I think, what, what is life like for him? Do you think he was surprised when somebody said, Hey, just, just go stand over there at the back. In fact, just, just sit on the floor. That way we can give that seat to someone else. You think he was used to that? I think he was. I think like a, like a homeless guy on a busy sidewalk, people are just stepping around him, stepping over him, maybe accidentally stepping on him. I think that poor guy was probably used to being invisible. Used to not really being seen. Used to being cast aside. Used to being in the way. And so I look at that guy. No money, no power, no influence, nothing. No one needed anything from him. Because he had nothing of earthly value to offer. You know, I can't really relate to that guy. I may not be rich by American standards, but I'm, I'm not poor like that guy having nothing of earthly value to offer. I have everything I need and more. 
But then I look at this, this rich guy with the, he's kind of the stereotypical rich guy in, in, in first century. He's got the expensive jewelry, the fine clothing. He's got everything you, you could possibly imagine. And I think, well, what is this guy's life like? Well, if he's one of the few wealthy people in, in this town, then he's also going to be a person of influence and power. And he's going to be the guy that when you need to get something done, you're going to call him because he knows people. He's got all the important people in his address book. When you need some seed money to get a big project going, you're going to go to this guy to kick in a lot of money to get it started. He is a guy that is the the wealthy mover and shaker in the community. Everyone needs something from him. So I'm looking at the rich guy and I think, you know, I can't really relate to him either, right? I, I mean, we in our family, we watch our spending carefully. We, we make sure we live within our means. When we give money away, there's not a whole lot of zeros on the checks, right? There's plenty of people who can write much bigger checks than me. My checks are not going to get noticed by anybody. And so I, I can't really relate to the, the money thing. And, and while my role as a pastor puts me in a position of influence, right? I'm here on a stage standing in front of hundreds of people. Um, you guys might like me, but nobody out there really cares, right? So I can't really relate to the, the rich guy. So I said to God, God, I don't get it. I, I don't relate to the poor, powerless guy with no influence, and I, I don't relate to the, the rich guy with loads of influence. And, and God, again, just sort of whispered in. He said, yeah, yeah I know, I know. But who do you want to be? Who do you think you deserve to be? Don't you hate when God does that to you? Just kind of takes scripture like a, like a knife and just kind of drives it into your heart. Like here, let's, let's really let this soak in just a little bit. See, if I'm honest, I want to be the guy who gets the special treatment. Just being truthful with you. You know, I want to sit in the corporate box seats at the game, right? I want to be the person of influence that everyone goes to when they need to get something done. I want the, the social capital. Just being honest, it's what my flesh desires. It's funny, I'm mad at the church in James 2 for giving this rich guy special treatment, but I kind of want the special treatment, right? I'll take the power. I don't really care about the money, but I'll take the power. I'll take the influence. And that's why that clip at the beginning that we showed resonated so deeply with me because I I get it. I get it. Now, of course, no one in this room struggles with that. I'm the only person who, who is as evil and diabolical as that. None of you think highly of yourself, right? Now, if I know human nature at all, then I know that there are many people in this room that would say, yeah, man, I, I want the same thing. I'd kind of like that special treatment as well. I'd kind of like to be treated preferentially. I'd like to be the person that everyone wants something from, everyone needs something from. I don't want to be that person who's invisible. Now, on good days, when we are submitting all of who we are to God, that same desire for the preferential treatment to be the person of influence can be used for God's glory. Because it it can make us the kind of people who say, man, I really want to accomplish something for God. 
I actually want to change the world. I actually want to get something like that done. But there's always that struggle in our souls because on bad days, pride can enter in and it can easily degenerate into an absolute mess. There's a constant battle for our souls and we must continually ask the Spirit of God to guard our hearts and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because it is so easy to take our eyes off of Jesus and to put them onto ourselves. But you know, a minute ago when I asked, who do you want to be? Who, who do you think you deserve to be? The rich, powerful person of influence that causes heads to turn when you walk into the room, or the poor one that no one even notices? See, some of you right away in your hearts, you said, the poor one. I'm the poor one. That's what I deserve. That's all I'm worth. I have nothing to offer. No one should pay attention to me. You want me to go stand over there on the side? That, that's fine. Just, just let me melt into this wall. Don't be too quick to assume that those feelings are emerging from a deep heart of humility. See, they may be, but it's also possible that they're, they're coming from a, a lifetime of hurt. And over the course of your life, you've had some terrible experiences come your way. It's possible that you've endured deep pain, loss, and abuse that brings you to a place where you think so little of yourself. I have nothing to offer. I'm like that poor man dressed in shabby clothes, standing off to the side of the room, just trying to get out of people's way. Let me ask you this. Is, is that what Jesus says about you? Is that what God thinks when he looks at you? I, I don't think so. You realize that as a child of God, you have incredible things to offer others? Do you know that, that God has gifted you? If you're a Christ follower, you carry in your heart the hope of the world. You realize that when you're a part of the body of Christ, that the body needs you? Exactly you. You. You do have something to offer because that's how God designed things to be in the church. The world honors people of power and influence. The world defines success with a dollar sign. The church is supposed to be different. When our hearts are right, everything we have becomes another tool to accomplish God's mission on this earth. Whether we have a lot or a little, whether we have much power or no power, whether your address book is filled with all the right names, or whether you don't know anyone, everything we have becomes God's. When our hearts are right, when we are submitted to the Spirit of God, everything we are, everything we own, everything we do, is brought back to God to be used for his good purposes. And here's the cool thing. When you do that well, then the person with no influence, no worldly, earthly influence, becomes a person of influence for the gospel. And suddenly, the rich, poor, powerful, not powerful, talent, influence, prestige, power, these things all fade away. 
And we are left with a soul before God, worshiping in spirit and in truth. Those people are hard to find. The people who have reached kind of that that zen-like quality where they're just kind of tracking with Jesus, right? The Mother Teresa types, those are hard to find because there's so many things that battle for our souls. And when we find one, we want to honor what God is doing in their life and heart. Well, I found one, and I want to show you this video about her. And I want you to see how this person of, of no influence became a person of influence to so many people in such a beautiful way. Watch this video. I had an accident and my hip was broken in so many pieces. I have two rods in my hip. She's an angel among us. If you watch her in the bread company, everyone comes in to see Catherine. You know, we sell the bread, but I feel like there are some people who specifically come with prayer requests and uh, I go pray for them. One day when we were sharing, she said she was in need of a different car, that her car was needing expensive repairs. I had been saving money, but uh, I knew it wasn't enough, so I knew I would take a few years to save for it. So a couple months later, I went in and I said, Catherine, how's your car fund coming? And she said, I gave it all away. And I looked at her and, and she said, there was a widow in need, and I gave her the $5,000. I struggled a lot when I gave that money. And uh, I said, I feel okay, but uh, do you think I did the right thing? I mean, I cannot give what I don't have, so I just give what I had. I was shocked, and so I come home and I tell Pete that we needed to help Catherine with her car fund. He looked at me and he said, no, I think we need to buy Catherine a car. And I said, okay, great. Pete called Scott and said, do you know Catherine Great Harvest? And he said, yes, he did. Pete said, well, we'd like to buy her a car. He asked Pete, do you want it used your new car? And it just hit him right in the face. Why would he ask me that? Of course I would want a used car. That's good enough. He just paused for a moment, and he said, I want a new car. And he said it was silent on the phone for a few seconds. And Scott said, whoa, I want to help. And so he pitched in some. So she came to the bakery, and uh, she asked me, if you were to buy a car, what kind of a car would you like? I said, Debbie. I'm not really planning to buy a car, but she said, oh, just tell me. And she said, I'd like a SUV cruise control, and she said, I'd like a light color. And we called Scott, and he said, I think I've got the perfect car. So Pete said, can we deliver it tomorrow? 
So we have the bread company owner and his family, Scott and his family and our family. And Catherine sees us all coming in and she's just all excited to see everyone. And uh, I went to give them hugs and I said, what's Pete doing here? I did have the, the biggest idea. When I went out, And so we walked her over to the car. We said, Catherine, this is your new car. So, oh, I said, for me, this is for me. I said, oh, I, I knew God had many cars, but I didn't know he had a new one for me. So God had new cars <laughs> for me. We all stood there in tears as we saw the joy on Catherine's face. And we got to be a part of it. And the joy of that was unbelievable. It felt so right. It was such an excitement to drive it. We told Catherine that we would like this to be confidential. But I kept running into people who would say, I heard what you did for Catherine. It wasn't even us, it was Catherine. It all started with Catherine giving of what she had to a widow to help her, and it just continues on. Generosity begets generosity. We don't give in order to receive. We give because it's the nature of Jesus Christ. He gave us his life. So we, we have the, the DNA of Jesus Christ of giving. <laughs> yeah, so this is one story I will never forget in my life. Yeah. You know what I love about that video, um, aside from the fact that I probably could have just shown that instead of preaching, um, because she did such a great job, is that here is this person who really, by earthly standards, has no influence. She's not somebody who is in a, a career that you would say, wow, man, this is, you've really accomplished something here. And yet, what is God using her to do? Have an incredible impact. What does she say? I, I, can't, I cannot give what I don't have, so I just, I just give what I have. And then God turns that into something amazing. And all these people are touched by it. A person of no influence becomes a person of great influence in the gospel and through the church. Let's close here in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the way that James cuts into our hearts. Thank you for the way that the church becomes a place where distinctions don't matter, where we become one in you. God, I pray that we would not slip back into the world's ways of thinking ourselves, thinking of ourselves too highly or too lowly because we recognize that in Jesus, you have raised us up. You have made us one. You have made us people of worth. 
pray these things would enter into our hearts in a real way. In Jesus' name, amen.